This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up this Sunday morning here on KGMI. Dick Donahue with you. Let's talk about the Fed is losing billions, wiping out profits that funded spending. Now, profits and losses aren't usually thought of as a consideration for central banks, but rapidly mounting red ink at the Federal Reserve and many peers risk becoming more than just an accounting oddity. The bond market is enduring its worst sell-off in a generation, triggered by high inflation and the aggressive interest rate hikes that central banks are implementing. Falling bond prices in turn mean paper losses on the massive holdings that the Fed and others have accumulated during the rescue efforts in recent years. Rate hikes also involve central banks paying out more interest on the reserves that central banks park with them. That's tipped the Fed into operating losses, creating a hole that may ultimately require the Treasury Department to fill via debt sales. The United Kingdom Treasury is already preparing to make up a loss at the Bank of England. Britain's move highlights a dramatic shift in countries, including the U.S., where central banks are no longer significant contributors to government revenues. The U.S. Treasury will see a stunning swing, going from receiving about $100 billion last year from the Fed to a potential annual loss of $80 billion by year-end. The accounting losses threaten to fuel criticism of the asset purchase programs undertaken in rescue markets and economies, most current recently when COVID-19 shuttered large swaths of the global economy in 2020. Coinciding with the current outbreak in inflation, it could spur calls to rein in monetary policymakers' independence or limit what steps they can take in the next crisis. The problem with central bank losses are not the losses per se. They can always be recapitalized, but the political backlash that central banks are likely to increasingly face. The following figures illustrate the scope of operating losses. The mark-to-market balance sheets are now materializing. Fed remittances owed to the U.S. Treasury reached a negative $5.3 billion as of October 19th, a sharp contrast with the positive figures seen as recently as the end of August. A negative number amounts to an IOU that will have to be repaid via any future income. The Reserve Bank of Australia posted an accounting loss in Australian dollars of $36.7 billion, or about $23 billion in U.S., for the 12 months through June, leaving it with an Australian $12.4 billion negative equity position. The Dutch Central Bank warned last month that they expect cumulative losses of about 9 billion euros, about $8.8 billion of U.S. in the coming years. And the Swiss National Bank reported a loss of 95.2 billion francs, about 95 billion U.S. dollars for the first six months of the year as the value of its foreign exchange holdings slumped, the worst first half performance since it was established in 1907. And while for the developing country, losses at the central bank can undermine confidence and contribute to a general exodus of capital, that sort of credibility challenge isn't likely for a rich nation. The losses don't have to have a material effect on their ability to conduct monetary policy in the near term. But if you take the Royal Bank of Australia, Deputy Governor Michelle Bollock said in a response to a question last month about the Australian Central Bank's negative equity position, we don't believe that we are impacted at all in our capacity to operate. After all, we can create money. That's what we did when we bought those bonds, she noted. But there are still some consequences. Central banks have already become politically charged institutions after, by their own admission, they failed to anticipate and act quickly against budding inflation over the past year or more. Incurring losses adds another magnet for criticism. Let's talk about the European Central Bank implications. For the central bank, 
The potential for mounting losses comes after years of purchases of government bonds conducted despite the reservations of conservative officials arguing that they blurred the lines between monetary and fiscal policy. With inflation running at five times the ECB's target, pressure is mounting to dispose of those bond holdings, a process called quantitative tightening that the ECB is currently preparing for even as the economic outlook darkens. And although there are no clear economic constraints at the central bank running losses, there is possibility that these become more of a political constraint on the ECB. Particularly in Northern Europe, it may fuel the discussion of quantitative tightening. And President Christine Lagarde hasn't given any indication that the ECB's decision on quantitative tightening will be driven by the prospect of incurring losses. She told lawmakers in Brussels last month that generating profits isn't part of their bank, the, the central bank's task, insisting that fighting inflation remains policymakers' only purpose. And let's talk about the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan remains apart for now, not having raised interest rates and still imposing a negative rate on a portion of banks' reserves. But things could change when Governor Kuroda steps down in April and his successor is confronted by historically high inflation. As for the Fed, Republicans have in the past voiced oppositions to its practice of paying interest on surplus bank reserves. Congress granted that authority back in 2008 to help the Fed control interest rates. With the Fed now incurring losses and the Republicans potentially taking control of at least one chamber of Congress in November midterm election, the debate may resurface. The Fed's turnaround could be particularly notable. After paying as much as $10 billion to the Treasury in 2021, I'm sorry, after paying as much as $100 billion to the Treasury in 2021, it could face losses of more than $80 billion on an annual basis if policymakers raise rates by three-quarters of a percent this November meeting next week and 50 basis points in December, as markets are anticipating. Without the income from the Fed, the Treasury needs to sell more debt to the public to fund government spending. This may be a little too arcane to hit the public's radar, but a populist could spin the story in a way that would not reflect well on the Fed at all. And let's take a quick look at some of the weekly global summary we have this week. Global equities were higher on the week, but well below their midweek highs after a string of poor earnings reports and outlooks for mega-cap tech firms. The yield in 10-year U.S. Treasury dropped to just below 4% from 4.25% a week ago. The price of barrel West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil rose 88.15 from 85.75 last week, with volatility as measured by the CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, fell to 27 from 30. And some of the macro news. Markets sense central banks are shifting gears. First, the Reserve Bank of Australia surprised markets by hiking rates less than expected early in the month. Then the Bank of Canada caught the markets off guard on Wednesday by raising rates at a less than expected half percent and signaling that rate hiking cycle is getting closer to its end. That was followed by the central, European Central Bank on Thursday, where the bank met market expectations by raising rates three-quarters of a percent, but the president, Christine Lagarde, surprised markets by saying a substantial part of the tightening cycle is done and pointing out there are clear signs of an economic slowdown in the eurozone. The more balanced view from Lagarde, moving away from earlier inflation-centric focus, prompted investors to trim bets on further aggressive tightening by the ECB. Lagarde said that the ECB will discuss at its December meeting the key principles that it will follow in shrinking its balance sheet. The bank also announced that it has changed the terms of its super cheap loans to banks, which is called the targeted long-term refinancing operations, making them less attractive. Investors repriced the ECB terminal rate, but for this hiking cycle to closer to 2.5% from 2.75% to 3% territory priced prior to Thursday's meeting. But hot preliminary inflation figures from the Eurozone on Friday saw rates drift higher again. It remains to be seen if the U.S. Federal Reserve downshifts when its rate-setting committee meets this next Wednesday. Though over the past week, expectations for the terminal funds rate have fallen from 5% to closer to 4.86% after a Wall Street Journal report indicated the FOMC was mauling a slower pace of hikes ahead. A 0.75% hike in the target rate to 4% 
two, four and a quarter percent is already fully priced in. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back quickly. Halloween is full of surprises. Ah! But they don't all have to be scary. That's right. Some changes are coming to KGMI this Halloween that we think you'll find are downright spook. I mean, spectacular. (laughs) Something familiar returns. Here's Johnny. And something new pops up. Tune in before and after the KGMI Morning News this Monday, October 31st, for a real treat. His commitment to Northwest Washington dates back five generations. Our Congressman Rick Larson. Brought up in a family of eight kids, Rick was raised with the value of hard work. The same way Rick and his wife Tia raised their own two boys. Larson understands the pressures facing families when it comes to the rising cost of living. And why he just passed the new Inflation Relief Act that starts lowering costs by reducing prescription drug prices for Washington seniors. And caps insulin costs at $35. Rick sees the big picture. That's why he just helped pass bipartisan legislation bringing semiconductor manufacturing back to America. Larson's bill eases supply chain issues and means more good-paying jobs, all while lowering prices on cars and electronics. Common sense. Practical solutions for working families and local business. That's always been Rick's approach to making a difference for growing our local economy. Rick Larson, Congress. I'm Rick Larson, and I approve this message. Paid for by citizens to elect Rick Larson. Are you on Medicare? Hi, this is Marcia Neal with Vibrant USA. The Medicare annual enrollment period is underway. This is the time of year to review your Part D prescription drug plan or Medicare Advantage plan and make changes for January 1st. If you need assistance reviewing your plan options this year, give Vibrant USA a call at 866-733-5111. There is never a fee for our service and our friendly agents will be happy to assist you. Get informed and inspired with Saturday Morning Live on KGMI. Join a group of knowledgeable hosts as they present a variety of guests and viewpoints on issues important to our area and to you and your family. Sponsored by Asset Advisors, LLC, at Linden Sheet Metal, each Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. We're Asset Advisors. We're located out in Ferndale, actually about halfway out on the Pacific Highway in the Pacific Commerce Center. Address is 5060 Pacific Highway Suite 101 Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number 360-733-1200. And check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. Okay. Well, we're seeing the markets are applauding Sunak's appointment as United Kingdom Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak was appointed Prime Minister of the United Kingdom on Tuesday by King Charles after Boris Johnson and Penny Mondrat abandoned the Conservative Party leadership contest. Sunak retained Jeremy Hunt as his Chancellor of the Executor, a move that served nervous markets. Sunak, who was churred as the Chancellor in Johnson's cabinet, is seen as substantially more fiscally responsible than his immediate predecessor, Liz Truss. Days after Truss's mini-budget was announced in late September, the pound crashed to record lows and 30-year gilt yields soared to 5%. Today, gilt yields are around 3.5%, roughly where they were trading before Truss's growth package was announced. And the pound has rebounded to about 1.1550 area from 1.0350. Expectations of Bank of England's rate hikes have moderated dramatically as well. During the worst of the market crisis, expectations for the terminal rate at this cycle were above 6.25%. Today, the market expects policy rate to top out at around 4.75%. 
Anne Tsai secures his third term. The 20th National Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party concluded last weekend with Xi Jinping securing an unprecedented third term as the party's general secretary. Additionally, Xi was able to staff the party's Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee with allies and loyalists, cementing his hold on power. Those officials are generally seen as less market-oriented than their predecessors and less experienced overall. Markets fear the consolidation of power by Xi could stifle the economy and private enterprise. In the short term, the country's zero-COVID policy and tighter regulation, along with the potential for an early military move against Taiwan, could limit investors' appetite for Chinese assets. And the U.S. economy returned to growth in the third quarter. We'll cover some of this material later in more detail. But the U.S. economy grew at an annualized rate of 2.6% in the third quarter, reversing two quarters of contraction. An improving trade balance and moderate consumer spending were contributors to growth, while business investment in structures and residential investment both tumbled amid sharply higher interest rates. A shift in spending patterns from goods to services continues, the data shows. Core measures of growth, such as the final sales to domestic purchasers, which grew at just one-tenth of one percent annual rate, showed the economy is close to stalling. And soft PMIs increase recession fears. That's portfolio manager indexes. Uh, composite purchasing matter indices, which combined manufacturing and services sectors, weakened further in most developed markets. Preliminary October data revealed this week. The Eurozone composite dropped to 47.1 for 48.1 last month, while in the United Kingdom, it dropped to 47.2 from 49.1. In the U.S., the index dropped to 47.3 from 49.5. But Japan bucked the trend, with the composite ending up to 51.7 from 51. And a few quick hits here. The U.S. core personal consumption expenditures price deflator rose 5.1% year-over-year in September, up from 4.9% in August, which is the highest reading since March. The employment cost index rose 1.2% in the third quarter, in line with expectations, but at a 5% annual clip, is firmer than the Fed would like to see. And preliminary inflation data in the Eurozone showed that price pressures have continued to build this month, year over year. The European Union harmonized basis CPI rose to 11.6% in Germany, 12.8% in Italy, and 7.1% in France, all significantly higher than expected. The U.S. Energy Information Administration reported this week the U.S. exports of crude and refined products reached a record of 11.4 million barrels a day. This last week, the surge in exports comes at a time when the administration of U.S. President Joe Biden is considering curbs on energy exports. And Japan left monetary policy unchanged on Friday. The Bank of Japan, Governor Kuroda, warned investors not to expect a shift to monetary policy anytime soon. Rapid swings in the yen's exchange rate, though, are undesirable, the governor said. And the European Union announced on Thursday that it'll ban internal combustion engines and new cars by 2035. The U.S. three-month and 10-year Treasury yield curve inverted this week, which has historically signaled the heightening possibility of a recession. And the conference board's measure of U.S. consumer confidence tumbled to 102.5 from 107.8 in October. U.S. house prices slumped in August, according to CoreLogic. From a year ago, prices rose 13% nationally, down from 15.6% gain in July. And new Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Meloni said this week that Italy will respect the EU budget rules, but will propose reforms to the EU growth and stability pact. China's economy grew 3.9% year-over-year in the third quarter amid an economic opening in the wake of COVID. This is up from a four-tenths percent in the second quarter. Industrial production rose 6.3% year-over-year in September, up from 4.2% in August. And the pace of retail sales slowed to 2.5% from August's 5.4% pace. U.S. September home sales declined 30.4% year-over-year as soaring mortgage rates hampered affordability, 
Freddie Mac's weekly mortgage survey showed that the average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage rose to 7.08%, which is the highest since 2002. And in earning news, about 52% of the constituents of the S&P 500 reported third quarter of 2022 blended earnings per share, which combines reported data with estimates for those that have yet to report, shows that earnings growth is running at 2.1%, while sales rose for about 9.4% compared with the same quarter a year ago. According to data from FactSet Research, stripping out the contribution to earnings growth from the energy sector, the earnings per share declined about 5%. Okay, let's cover this third quarter GDP report with a little bit more detail here. Real GDP growth in the third quarter supports our case the economy is not yet in recession, but also signals trouble ahead. Real GDP grew at a moderate 2.6% annual rate in the third quarter, beating consensus expectations. The growth in the third quarter was led by net exports, particularly in the goods sector, where exports surged and imports fell. However, don't expect that to continue. The dollar is strengthened substantially versus other major currencies, and so will also limit future purchases by foreigners while making foreign goods relatively inexpensive for Americans. Real personal and consumption is also up in the third quarter, but at a relatively tepid 1.4% annual rate. Moving forward, it's hard to be optimistic about growth in consumer spending purchasing power when real inflation-adjusted earnings are falling and consumers have reduced the extra balances they had in bank accounts due to massive government stimulus checks in 20 and 21. We like to follow personal consumption, business investment, and home building combined, which we call core GDP. This excludes the effect on real GDP of government purchases, inventories, and international trade, all of which are very volatile from quarter to quarter, which are hard for the U.S. to rely on for long-term growth. The problem is that overall, real GDP increased at a 2.6% annual rate in the third quarter, but core GDP rose at a meager one-tenth of one percent pace. That's a growth rate in core GDP that we usually see just before, during, or after recessions. No buno. The construction industry already appears to be in a recession of its own. Home building declined at a 26.4% annual rate in the third quarter, a sixth consecutive quarterly drop, and the largest decline since COVID first hit the U.S. Commercial construction fell at a 15.4% annual rate, also the sixth consecutive negative quarter and the weakest since COVID first hit. Meanwhile, inflation remains a problem. GDP prices rose at a 4.1% annual rate in the third quarter, up 7% from a year ago. Nominal GDP, which is real GDP growth plus inflation, rose at a 6.7% annual rate in the third quarter and is up 9% from a year ago. These figures signal that monetary policy still needs to tighten to bring inflation back down, and monetary policy tight enough to do that is likely to eventually cause a recession. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly. Halloween is full of surprises. Ah! But they don't all have to be scary. That's right. Some changes are coming to KGMI this Halloween that we think you'll find are downright spook... I mean, spectacular. (laughs) Something familiar returns. Here's Johnny. And something new pops up. Tune in before and after the KGMI Morning News this Monday, October 31st, for a real treat. Al Ostrander here, retired law enforcement and small farmer. We all know life is getting expensive. Healthcare costs are out of control, and that's why Sharon Shoemake capped the price of drugs like insulin in our state. Sharon Shoemake isn't afraid to stand up to big corporations like tobacco and drug companies. Now they're spending record amounts on attack ads on TV and in your mailbox. Don't believe their lies. I trust Sharon Shoemake. She works for you and me, not the big corporations. Paid for by people for Sharon Democrats. Enjoy your retirement at Meadow Greens, a retirement community offering warm, welcoming, independent, and assisted living apartments. Located on a premier golf course in beautiful Linden with panoramic views of green rolling hills and snow-capped mountains, Meadow Greens offers a fitness center, wellness programs, tailored social and recreational activities, and complimentary unlimited golf play with cart at Homestead Golf Club. One- and two-bedroom apartments with full kitchens are available, offering the freedom of eating in or enjoying 
enjoying a more social meal at the Outward Nine Restaurant or the Duck Hook Bistro. Then relax with a glass of wine with friends or cozy up next to the fireplace with a good book in the library lounge. Meadow Greens can also be of help when it's time to transition from an independent apartment to assisted living. Call Meadow Greens today to arrange a private tour at 354-8200 and online at meadowgreenslinden.com. The grass is always greener at Meadow Greens. You love what you find at Wilson. The leaves are falling and so are the prices at Wilson's Furniture during their fall savings event. Stop by today and check out the amazing savings you'll find at Wilson's. Open seven days a week on Pacific Highway in Ferndale. The holiday season creates magical moments to connect with your child. Did you know that singing with children or talking about the colors or smells of the season builds their vocabularies and helps their brains grow? As a parent, I'm the most powerful influence in my child's life. By taking a little time every day to talk, read, and sing with them, I'm setting them up for a lifetime of learning from the day they are born. Visit TalkingIsTeaching.org for free tips, ideas, and resources to transform everyday moments into magical moments for learning this season. Sign up for the CHS Northwest Propane Autofill Program and receive a cellular tank monitor with no monitoring fees. Plus, you'll be able to review your daily tank level readings from your smartphone or tablet. CHS Northwest, everything you need for home and farm. Online at chsnw.com. Dirk and Denise here at The Indian Insurance. For over 15 years, my wife and I, along with our amazing staff, have been helping individuals on Medicare navigate the overwhelming flood of propaganda. Plans with co-pays, plans with health club memberships, plans with prescription drug coverage, and plans to cover you if you're in Washington or Timbuktu. There are so many things to think about. Is my doctor in the network? Are my prescriptions covered? Do I need a referral? Am I going to be able to afford this plan? We address all these questions and more. Because we're an independent insurance agency, we write for most carriers and want to make sure that the plan you choose is going to work for your needs and your budget. Make an appointment today because if you're on Medicare, your annual election period starts October 15th and runs through December 7th. We have a new office located in Ferndale Market Center across the street from Industrial Credit Union next to the Diamond King. We look forward to seeing you here at DD Insurance on La Bounty Drive in Ferndale and online at dndinsurance.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. A properly operating furnace will guarantee that you stay comfortable as the seasons change. Contact West Mechanical Heating, Air Conditioning, and Electric for a system inspection today at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Okay, welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you. We're going to continue on with this week's economic reports that came out. I'm going to start out with September new home sales, then we'll have September durable goods, and September personal income and consumption numbers. Although beating consensus expectations, sales of new homes fell 10.9% in September and are down 17.6% from a year ago. The main issue in 22 has been declining affordability, with potential buyers getting squeezed by both higher prices and rapidly rising mortgage rates. Unfortunately, 30-year mortgage rates remain a significant headwind, currently sit above 7%, which is the highest since 2000. Assuming a 20% down payment, the change in mortgage rates and home prices just since December amounts to about a 76% increase in monthly payments on a new 30-year mortgage for the median new home. Although a lack of inventory has certainly contributed to price gains in the past couple of years, it's no longer as much of a problem. The month's supply of new homes, which is how long it's going to take to sell the current inventory at today's sales pace, is now 9.2 months, up significantly 3.3% earlier on in the pandemic. And while the month's supply of completed homes is still a relatively low 1.1%, Inventory of completed single-family homes has begun to rise quite rapidly as builders finish more units and rising cancellation rates on purchases leave potential buyers with more options. The good news from an affordability perspective is that the recent housing data shows that home prices are clearly in a declining trend. Both the National Case-Shiller Index and the FHFA Index 
the latter of which focuses on homes financed with conforming mortgages, fell in August for the second month in a row, and both fell at the fastest pace for any month since 2010 and 11. The Case-Shiller Index declined 9 tenths of 1% in August from San Francisco, Seattle, and San Diego leading the drop. However, all 20 major metropolitan areas in the country showed at least some decline in August. Meanwhile, FHFA prices declined 7 tenths of 1% for the month. Both of these indices are still up versus a year ago. The Case-Shiller is up 13%, the FHFA 119 But don't expect gains in the next 12 months as we project home prices three or four years from now to be about where they are today. That said, you also shouldn't expect a very steep 25% peak-to-bottom decline in home prices like we did in the prior housing bust, more like a 5-10% to drop instead. Why? Because housing is not massively overbuilt like it was at the peak of the housing bubble in 2005 and 6. On the manufacturing front, the Richmond Fed Index, a measure of mid-Atlantic factory sentiment, fell to minus 10 in October from zero in September. We'll be watching other regional surveys closely to see if weakness is confirmed elsewhere. Also in recent news, the Federal Reserve reported that the M2 measure of money supply declined six-tenths of one percent in September, which is the largest drop in any month on record going back to at least 1959. The M2 money supply soared 40.3% in 2021, which is the largest increase in any two years on record. But so far this year, we're only up about one-tenth of one percent annual rate. If these recent data are accurate, and we have some doubt, and if this slow pace continues for a prolonged period, the economy's in for a very rough time in 23 and 24, and inflation should remain elevated through 2023, but could plummet in 2024. And the durable goods order for September, a disappointing report on durable goods, as the transportation sector overshadowed what was otherwise weakness across the board, Far and away, the largest impact in September durable goods came from typically volatile categories of commercial aircraft and autos, which orders rose 21.9% and 2.2% respectively. But if you strip out transportation, the orders declined a half a percent in September, coming in below consensus expected up two-tenths of one percent. Every major non-transportation category of orders fell in September. One of the most important pieces of the report Shipments of core non-defense capital goods, which excludes aircraft, a key input for business investment in the calculation of GDP, fell a half a percent in September after healthy gains in July and August. However, these orders grew 6.3% in annual rate in the third quarter versus the second quarter, providing a tailwind for the third quarter GDP. But however, orders for core capital goods which will lead to shipments in the future, declined 7 tenths of 1% in September, only the second monthly decline for that category in 22. Orders for durable goods have recovered sharply since the pandemic, up 72.6% from April 2020 bottom, and now sit 18.7% above pre-pandemic levels. The shift from services to goods accelerated durable goods purchases beyond where they would have been had COVID never happened. And the return towards services taking place today means activity in the goods sector will likely soften in the year ahead. And September's personal income and consumption report, income and spending inflation all rose in September as the U.S. economy continues to transition from a stimulus-fueled misadventure towards a slower path of growth. The report is a great example of the shift from shutdown-induced measures that mainly supported the good side of the economy back to the service side, which was discouraged or outright prohibited during the pandemic. Consider for a moment that from February 20 to December of that year, spending on goods rose by more than $300 billion, while spending on services fell by over $500 billion. This government-induced shift caused a massive reallocation of resources, employees, consumer goods, and investment. Now as returned to more normal spending patterns, the good side of the economy is feeling the pain. 
And while consumer spending rose six-tenths of one percent in September, spending on goods rose a more modest three-tenths of one percent and follows declines of eight-tenths percent and four-tenths of percent over the last two months. This spring will bring with it some layoffs, inventory issues, and a host of other economic ills. Meanwhile, the services side of the economy is up a hearty eight-tenths of one percent in September. In addition to shifting what, what we could do and where we could do it, the stimulus checks, PPP loans, and extra unemployment benefits of 20 and 21 dramatically boosted consumer spending power, more than replacing lost wages. The economic morphine, which is meant to dull the pain of shutdowns, has led to a multi-decade high in inflation and economic pain. For now, it comes with trying to get inflation back in check. PCE prices, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, rose three-tenths of 1% in September and up 6.2% from a year ago. Core prices, which exclude food and energy, rose a half percent in September. They're up 5.1% from a year ago. And while energy prices will ebb and flow, core inflation is likely to remain higher for longer than most anticipate. No, we're not in a recession yet, but the Fed is almost very likely to cause one as they try to undo the effects of policy decisions made over the last two and a half years. And we see a report coming out here that small business optimism is improved for a third straight month. That optimism among small business edged up in September as firms grew less downbeat about the outlook for sales, while smaller shares said that they raised prices. The National Federation of Independent Business overall optimism index rose three-tenths of one percent to 92.1 last month, the group said in a report on Tuesday. Five of the gauge's ten components increased. Despite rising for a third straight month, the measure is historically low. And the survey's inflation metrics continue to ease. The net share of owners raising prices fell two percentage points to 51%, the lowest in a year but well, still well elevated. Almost a third of owners plan to increase prices in the next three months, the smallest share since January 21, and labor compensation plans also eased. Still, 30% of the respondents see inflation as the single most important issue impacting small business and a slight increase from August. Labor remains the biggest problem. Owners continue to report difficulty attracting qualified applicants and filling positions. And inflation and worker shortages continue to be the hardest challenges facing small business owners. Even with these challenges, owners are still seeking opportunities to grow their business in the current period. One of 10 owners expects lower real estate in the next three months, the fewest since March. A net 5% of firms said sales fell over the last three months, a slight improvement from a month earlier. And some 44% of owners said they expect business conditions to worsen over the next six months, up two percentage points from August. The smallest share of owners since June of 21 reported open positions last month, but at least 46% is still historically elevated. Firms are mostly struggling to hire in the transportation, manufacturing, construction sectors. The number of respondents planning to hire in the next three months climbed to its highest level since May. Dick Donnie here with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly. Hi, I'm Dan Johnson running for state representative. With increased crime, the cost of living, and students falling behind, our state is heading in the wrong direction. This November, you decide where we go from here. As your next state representative, I will fix these issues. Instead of defunding police and releasing dangerous criminals from prison, I will support law enforcement and give them back the tools they need to keep dangerous criminals off the street. Rather than add more taxes that increase the cost of living, I'll vote to cut property taxes, sales tax, and the gas tax. If you hear this and think, I could sure use a break right now, I'm right there with you because you won't get this from my opponent. My opponent works directly for Governor Jay Inslee. We can't afford another two years of more anti-police laws, higher gas taxes, and more fees that add to the cost of living. If you want something different out of Olympia, you need someone who will vote differently in Olympia. I'm Dan Johnson, and I would be honored to be your next state representative. Paid for by Vote Dan Johnson. The itsy-bitsy spider crawled up the water spout. 
down came the rain and washed that. That fire isn't itsy bitsy, Dad. Oh, don't worry, kiddo. It's just a story. No, Dad, that fire on the windowsill. The itsy bitsy spider is cute when it's only a nursery rhyme. But if your home has big, hairy, nasty spiders, don't panic. Call BioBug today. BioBug, service you trust, experience you expect. In Whatcom, Skagit, and Island Counties and online at BioBug.com. It's bad. What do you think their motive is, Chris? What do they want? We're a petri dish. I, I firmly believe that they look at us as nothing like we look at dolphins and whales. We tag them and we send them back out. The UFOs, ghosts, and other paranormal phenomena. They're researching us, so we better start researching them more seriously than what we are right now. And we could be their creation. We could. Coast to Coast is back on KGMI every night, 10 o'clock and beyond. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA Welcome back to Woke Wake Up. Dick Donnie here with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. Got questions for us? Give us a call. 360-733-1200. Well, inflation is pushing 76% of Americans off track financially, according to a new survey. A majority of Americans say inflation is pushing them off track, redirecting their attention to short-term goals like increasing their income and making it almost impossible for them to save retirement or their children's education. Consumer Financial Outlook Survey basically revealed that 59% of Americans feel like they're living paycheck to paycheck, and 78% said that they wish they had more breathing room in their finances, primarily because of the pressure inflation is putting on their wallets. When people see the cost of groceries at the store and gas at the pump, they can see the impact of inflation. Those are areas that people know it brings use to cost, and so they feel the effect of inflation directly. What's worrying is that 76% of the survey respondents said that they're pushing off track financially by inflation to the point where 60% said it's getting in the way of savings. And only 28% said that they were saving enough right now. As consumers' response to the current economic environment may end up inflicting long-term damage on their financial security as they forego future goals in order to make the present easier. For example, the survey found more people are trying to increase their income, 36%, sock away some emergency savings, 31%, pay off loans and debt, 23%, and credit cards, 22%, then are sticking to plans for retirement savings, which is 20%, investing, 13%, creating a financial strategy, 8%, and earmarking funds for children's education is only 6%. A lot of paying off loans because it's important to get rid of it, but at this time, to get into that intentional planning that they have, they've also procrastinated on. They need to look at how they're spending their money. In many cases, they'll wake up five years from now and realize that they don't have the money to send their child to school. Of course, knowing where the money is going, your budgeting, is one of those key pillars to good financial planning that almost every person would agree takes a ton of sense, but very few are able to do. Living within one's means, automated savings, and having a goals-based strategy are three of the areas rife with disconnect, according to the survey. 85% of those surveyed said living within their means is very or somewhat effective, but only 68% can do it. 82% said actively following a household budget is very or somewhat effective, but only 53% can do it. 77% said automating savings is very or somewhat effective, but only 41% do it. And 76% said establishing a financial strategy to address short and long-term goals is very or somewhat effective, but only 43% do it. Part of that chasm between knowing it's the right thing to do and doing it is a confidence issue. It's a challenging financial environment out there, and what we try to help our clients do in this case is address what they can control. But you can't control the markets but you can control to some degree what you spend and what you save. So in some ways, that chasm isn't all that your fault. In the last 10 years, a lower zero interest rates created a habit of floating some expenses with debt and credit cards, but interest rates change a lot faster than human behavior. 
it's often the behavioral issue more than than an actual money issue. Once they get off track, it's a lot harder to get back on that track. That kind of guidance is more important for the young as comparative data between boomers and Gen Z found that boomers were far more able to adjust their belt tightening according to the survey. For example, boomers were 15% more likely to dine out, less, 58% versus 43%. 13% were more likely to buy cheaper discount groceries, 49% versus 36%. 22% were likely to drive less, which is 49% versus 27%. 16% were likely to reduce utility costs, which is 40% versus 24. 14% more and more likely to shop at lower cost retailers, 37% versus 23. The divide makes sense when these two generations are viewed through the lens of social and consumer pressures on their times. They come from two different schools in a way. The world of Gen Z is more product driven, consumer driven, and brand driven. Boomers didn't grow up worrying about whether they were grocery shopping at Walmart, so it's easier for them to make adjustments. The next generation didn't grow up in the boomer's world, so they don't have the discipline that the boomer has. There's also not a feeling of impact in their finances as strongly the survey found, with only 38% of boomers said they felt price increases had impacted their financial goals. That could partially be due to the fact that most boomers have an established financial strategy that they can lean into. The survey was conducted in May and polled 20,221 adults across the country. The data was weighted to appropriate a target sample representing the U.S. in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, income, and geography. Well, let's bring it a little closer to home here and talk a little bit about Washington business taxes are among some of the highest in the nation. In the annual Ernst & Young report, in the Council of State Taxation, or COST, continues to illustrate the struggle that business owners in Washington State are having to meet their ever-increasing tax burden and maze of regulations that the state legislature mandates. Ultimately, a new regulation or tax on a small business is passed on to the consumer was a price increase in products and services provided. The report highlights that businesses paid $23.5 billion in total sales and local taxes in fiscal year 2020. The average taxes paid per employee by a business in the state was $8,100. That's the average taxes per employee. Washington continues to rely heavily on its business tax for revenue. And Washington businesses paying nearly half the tax revenue collected by state and local governments and agencies. Washington is ranked ninth highest in the nation on the business unfriendly list, even outranking California. And hidden in the numbers are costs of complying with tax filing, state regulations, state audit costs, and government mandates on small businesses. Some businesses have full-time employees just to deal with government regulation. Other Overburdens in regulations and taxes, such as proportional sales tax, municipal head tax on employees, and unemployment taxes created a compliance nightmare for small businesses that did not have the time or revenue to dedicate an employee for the filing requirements. And one of the most punitive taxes, hidden from consumers and baked into the cost of producing product or providing a service, is the state business and occupation tax. It actually represents 19.1% of the taxes that business pays. It's calculated based on gross revenue, allowing no deductions for costs. That's not allowing a deduction for rent, salaries, medical insurance for your employees. It comes right off the top. Even a business that loses money has to pay the B&O tax on any revenue that they generate. Not a real good feeling some days. And business taxes are not not a tax that someone else pays. Only the tax is passed on to the consumer, and no businesses could be profitable without doing so. Reducing regulations of taxes on business, particularly small businesses, is going to reduce consumer prices and provide budgetary relief. This is particularly needed during the continued inflationary pressure caused by the policies of both Washington State and the federal government. And I think a lot of us may have seen 
the vice president touting electric buses this last week. Well, let's give you a little comparison here because that's like a $616 latte. In 2015, Volkswagen admitted its diesel Passat emitted nearly 20 times as much pollution as the company claimed. They were fined tens of billions of dollars for fraud. But not to be outdone, the state of Washington is using some of that money for a settlement to pay 150 times as much as it should to reduce CO2 emissions. Franklin Pierce Schools in Pierce County unveiled its new electric bus, which according to Coleman Newsroom cost about $450,000 rather than normal $150,000. The primary justification for these costs is that the new buses will reduce CO2 emissions. By that standard, buying these buses is extremely wasteful. During the 10-year life of an electric bus, it's going to avoid about 156 metric tons of CO2. The state of Washington could reduce the same amount of CO2 for $1,560 by investing in widely available carbon reduction projects like methane capture. Taxpayers are spending $240,000 to get a $1,560 worth of environmental benefit. That's the math. Assuming a standard diesel bus gets about 7 miles per gallon, replacing it with an electric bus will reduce CO2 emissions by less than 3 pounds per mile. According to the presentation on electric buses, the lifespan of the buses is 10 years, averaging about 12,000 miles a year. So over 120,000 miles, and buses are going to reduce CO2 emissions by 342,000 pounds, which is about 156 metric tons. Assuming that electric is, electricity is very low cost, we can say electric buses will save about $6,000 a year in fuel costs. Although the buses cost an additional $300,000, they're going to save $60,000 in fuel over six, 10 years. The net additional cost for electric buses is about $240,000. Finally, it costs about $10 to reduce one metric ton of CO2. In some places, it costs more, like California. Other places, it costs less, like Northeast United States. This, however, is a common price that can be paid at places like the Bonneville Environmental Foundation. This means electric buses avoid $1,560 of worth of CO2 emissions during their lifetime. Put it another way, for every dollar worth of CO2 emissions, reduction from electric bus taxpayers spend almost $150. Rather than the $10 to reduce one metric ton of CO2, taxpayers are paying $1,538. The Department of Ecology which is programmed to subsidize electric buses elsewhere in the state. According to a graphic released by the governor's office, the Department of Ecology awarded $13.3 million to transit agencies across the state with a promise that it will reduce CO2 emissions by 68,000 tons or $680,000. That's $13.3 million for $680,000 in environmental benefit or $19 for every dollar of environmental benefit. That's like paying $80 for a latte. Dick Donahue with you with Welp Wake Up here on KGMI. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy your next latte. Think about it. Got questions for us? Give us a call, 360-733-1200. And don't forget our live show on Saturdays at 11 o'clock. Thanks and have a great week. voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor.